going to preach something to you this morning that I believe is, uh, it is a word for the moment. It is a now word for North Place Church. I believe it is a key to you. It is a key as an individual and as this congregation moves forward, it is a key to unlocking what God has available for us as a body of believers. It is an overlooked principle in our culture. I want to encourage you, and I know I recommend books to you all the time, and you're probably saying, Pastor, we're not done with the last book you read, and you're recommending another. It's because I don't believe you can be a leader without being a reader. And so I want to keep you informed, so that if something is said during this message, because a lot of the heart and drive of this series is directed through the the ministry of John Bevere, Honor's Reward, and Studies of Scripture, he's spent a great deal of time discovering honor and authority, how it relates to the body of Christ. We have these books available. We try to get them at discount levels here, buying in quantity so that you can get them cheaper. You can pick them up if you leave. If you hear something this week, next week, in this series of messages that stir deeper interest and deeper study, you can pick this up, and I believe you'll be blessed. John Bevere is a phenomenal author who in a 100 years from now will be considered a classic author of our day. But he writes in such a way that it is easy to understand and relevant to our world. He is a man of the book. And his work, his writings are filled with scripture and in-depth study of the Word of God. He, his book is entitled Honor's Reward. I want to entitle this series today that same, but this morning's message is entitled The Honor Principle. Because I believe honor is a forgotten virtue in American culture. Honor can be defined as showing reverence or respect for, but you can better understand what honor is by looking at its uh, opposite, dishonor. Dishonor could be described as disdain. But another revelation of dishonor is holding in common, holding something common that ought to have your reverence. So when I look at something that is sacred or common or sacred or holy and I make it common, I take it for granted, I dishonor it. And so the scripture is teaching us a principle of honor. We understand honor and the reason I know it is because the moment an author captures honor in a book, or the moment an author captures honor on a movie screen, it moves us to tears. Somebody can take a military film or tell a story, put it on a screen, put it in a video, and there's a patriotic pride that rises on the inside of us, and that pride and that passion is motivated because there is a born sense of honor in every heart. But for the most part, America, in its selfish individualism, has lost the concept of honor. That's the reason there is moral lawlessness in our culture because there's no honor of government law or civil authority. That's the reason our classrooms have become war rooms. It's because there's no honor for teachers and those in authority in education. It's the reason there is pandemonium in your office because there is no sense of honor and understanding of God's delegated authority in the marketplace. It's the reason that there is all kinds of chaos in the church and there are splits and splinters everywhere because there is no sense of honor and understanding of God's delegated authority on this earth. And that lack of understanding of honor and a submission to God's delegated authority robs us of the full blessing and His reward upon the lives of His people. Over the next few weeks, we're going to begin answering the questions, what does God say about authority? Who is God's delegated authority on this earth? And should I respond to a delegated authority in my life that is ungodly and dishonest? And what happens if I do? What happens if I don't? And the Scripture has a lot to say about this concept of honor and authority. I want to begin today in 
Second John verse 8. And the reason I say verse 8 is because there's only one chapter. You could say Second John chapter 1 verse 8. But there's only one chapter in Second John which lets us know that at this time in John's life he is an old preacher. He is seasoned veteran. And when somebody gets to this stage in their life, they don't waste words. Every word they use has a meaning to it. You know, we had the phrase years back when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. There comes a point. When a person is aged and wise, that when they talk, you know they're not going to beat around the bush. They're going to get the heart of the matter. And everything they say is going to have weight because they're not going to mince words. This is where John was. There's not even a chapter 2, just a chapter 1. And in verse 8 of Second John, it says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. I want to say that again. Look to yourselves that we do not lose things that we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. John is telling us and warning us against the possibility of losing our life's inheritance. It is possible to labor and our life's work and labor be lost because of wrong priorities or wrong motives or a a misunderstanding of the principles of the Word of God. So if you begin in that verse, he says, look to yourselves. He's saying, Examine yourself. Take heed. Watch out. It's a warning. Be careful. Because it is possible for a man or a woman to labor their entire life and lose their life's reward and not receive the full reward that God has promised. Imagine a farmer toiling in the soil under the hot heat of the sun and laboring, breaking up fallow ground, planting seed, keeping pesticides. He fights the weather. He fights the the, the pestilence. He fights all the things that happen on the farm only to get right before the harvest, make a wrong decision and lose his crop. Imagine a businessman labored since he was a young entrepreneur, get to the end of his life, make a decision at the end of his life and lose it all. He does not come into his full reward because of wrong choices that have been made. Let me talk to you about life-defining moments. It is possible for us to lose our inheritance. And usually we lose those things, the blessing, the favor, the rewards of God in our life through life-defining moments. The problem with life-defining moments is we never know when they're coming. The life-defining moment has come and gone before we ever know it was a life-defining moment. You never know that that moment was there until you're looking back on it. That's the reason why it is imperative that you and I develop a pattern of honoring wise counsel and being obedient to the Word of God even in the insignificant moments in our life because there's going to come a day when one of those insignificant moments in our life is a life-defining moment. If we shirk wise counsel and don't walk in obedience to the Word of God in the everyday, the mundane, the insignificant moments, there's going to come a day we're going to look back and have missed a life-defining moment in our lives and have walked disobedient to what God asked us to and therefore do not receive the full blessing and the reward that God has for us. In 1 Kings chapter 12, there's the story of a young man named Rehoboam. He becomes the king of the nation of Israel. He inherits the throne from his father Solomon. When he becomes king, the people of Israel come to him and they say, Sire, are we going to, uh, are you going to rule over us like your father? He was a hard taskmaster. He was difficult king. Are you going to rule over us? Or are you going to treat us better than your father? And he said in chapter 12, I'm going to seek counsel and I'll get back with you. 
The verse on your screen, verse number 7, is the counsel that he received from his elders. If you will be a servant to this people, they told the king. If you'll be considerate of their needs and respond with compassion, work things out with them, they will end up doing anything for you. But after he sought the counsel of his elders, he then turned and sought the counsel of his peers. His peers said to him, if you want these people to follow you, you need to be a more difficult king than your father. You need to rule them with a rod iron. These people will never follow a servant leader. They're going to follow a dictator. You need to be more harsh than your father. Because he listened not to the elders, but he listened to his peers. Rehoboam gave up five-sixths of his father's kingdom. It was literally ripped from his father's hands. That from his hands, the kingdom of his father, was ripped from his hands. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel were taken out of Rehoboam's kingdom because this was a life-defining moment for Rehoboam and he didn't obey God. He didn't listen to wise counsel. I dare say that in the moment, Rehoboam probably never realized there was as much merit on that decision as what happened. It was a life-defining moment he never saw coming until after it was over. And you can bet that that moment was not defined in that one decision. Long before Rehoboam ever sought the counsel of those elders, he had developed a pattern in his life of listening to rebellious counsel. I imagine him, I imagine in my mind seeing him around a, a table in the palace with a goblet of wine in his hand, talking with a bunch of young friends that went with pride in his heart saying, one day when I am king, we're not going to do things around here like those silly old men are doing right now. And there was this pattern being developed in his heart of rebellion, of doing things differently, a pattern of disloyalty, a pattern of dishonor, so that when it came time to make a decision in a life defining moment he was geared to making the wrong decision because he had created the wrong pattern in his life all of us have life defining moments have you ever um, have you ever had an assignment in school and you really didn't realize the assignment was as big a deal and it wasn't a big a deal to you as it was to your teacher and so you kind of did it half-heartedly and after it was over you got an average grade or below and the teacher came out and reminded you you guys, you're going to have to realize this grade weighted enough on your semester grade to that of a regular exam. And when that revelation comes to you you say to yourself if I had known that that exam had that much weight I would have put a little more effort into it. That's the way life-defining moments come. We never know they are there until they are already gone. They are undetected moments that when responded to correctly bring great reward. That when responded to wrongly leave us to diminish in God's favor, in God's blessing. If we don't develop a pattern of heeding God's Word and listening to wise counsel, we will lose the full reward that is promised to us. Before you can really grasp honor, before you can really understand the power of submitting to authority, you have to begin with this one idea and understanding. Before you can ever pursue the full reward of God, you have to understand that God, by His nature, is a rewarder. He wants to reward. See, I, I didn't grow up with that understanding of God. I grew up in a very legalistic, strict holiness culture, and I saw God as some angry deity ready to slash me with lightning at my first mistake. And that's the concept of God. The idea of God being a rewarder was not in my Christian vocabulary. But when I understand the Scripture, I understand that God in His very nature desires to reward His children. You need to understand, when I speak of rewards because of the 
of the abuse in our culture, everybody automatically goes to material things. And you need to understand that the rewards of God in your life, if material is all you think about, you're missing out on the blessing and favor of God in every dimension of your life. But don't negate the fact that God can and will and desires to reward and bless you even in the material arena. The Scripture says God is a rewarder. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In order to please God, you must believe that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. When God introduced Himself to Abraham, I mean this is the moment of first impression. He introduced Himself to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 1. Listen to what He says in His introductory statement. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. How's that for an introduction to come into contact with somebody on the first impression? They say first impressions are lasting impressions. And so God said to Abraham, The thing I want you to remember about me, Abraham, is that I am your exceedingly great reward. In order for Abraham to believe and pursue this massive vision that God had placed in his heart, he had to have the truth that God is a rewarder firmly established. How are you going to persevere through difficulties that your descendants are going to number the stars in the sky when you don't even have an heir if you don't have a firm belief in your heart that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I pray the Holy Spirit this morning gets it out of your head and into your heart and establishes that truth in your spirit that God is a rewarder. Psalm 19, 9 and 11 in the Amplified Bible says the reverent fear of the Lord. The reverent fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they than gold, even than much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. It says in verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And in verse number 11, in keeping them, the ordinances of the Lord, there is great reward. Psalm 57 and 2, I will cry to the God Most High who performs on my behalf and rewards me. God is by nature a rewarder of those who seek Him. But you need to understand something. There is a difference between God's love and God's pleasure. I want you to let this sink into your spirit this morning because most Christian people don't get this. There is a difference between God's love and God's pleasure. God loves everybody. God loves the people who curse Him. God loves the people worshiping other gods today of other religions. God loves the Buddhist and the Muslim as much as He loves you. He loves them today. There is no uh, discrepancy or favoritism in the love of God. But I will tell you, there is favoritism in the pleasure of God. It is one thing for God to love you. It is another thing for God to be pleased with you. And God rewards those who please Him. There is a difference between His love and His pleasure. He will love me in my disobedience. He will reward me when I please Him, and I please Him when I heed His counsel. Second John, verse 8, Look to yourselves 
that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, it's logical to think that if there is a full reward, then there is also a partial reward, and then there is no reward at all. When we talk about rewards to Christians, we are not talking about salvation. We're not talking about your eternity. We're not talking about heaven or hell. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that there is a judgment that every Christian will stand before. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we are going to give witness and testimony to the life that we have lived as a believer on the face of this earth. We're going to give an account of the way we managed our time, the way we managed our talent, the way we managed our treasure. We're going to give account of our motives. We're going to give account of our words. We're going to give account of our deeds. It's not an issue of heaven or hell. It's not an issue of salvation. At the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a description that my life's work as a believer is going to be laid in a fire. And that pure fire is going to determine whether or not my life is made of wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to burn with no lasting eternal blessing, or whether it is going to stand the test of time. If I'm at that judgment, I'm a believer, I'm going to heaven. But just because I'm a believer does not mean my work is not going to be tested by fire. The today's English version says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at that judgment, we will receive what we deserve. In other words, let me paraphrase it like this. What we do with the cross of Christ will determine where we spend eternity. The way we live after we become believers will determine how we spend eternity. God rewards our lives for fulfilling His pleasure. And we fulfill His pleasure when we walk in obedience to His command. But what you need to understand, God has promised to reward those who please Him in eternity, full reward. But the Scripture says that a God that is by nature a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him does not want to wait till eternity to begin to reward His people. He says in His Word in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 8, Bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. God says, I want to reward you in the now life and in the next life. The only way to align yourself with God is to walk in obedience with His commands. This is where honor comes in. There's a profound scripture. In Mark chapter number 6, that has troubled me all my life. That whole chapter has bothered me a little bit. I've heard people quote the answer Jesus gave in this passage of Scripture all my life. I want to examine, what does honor have to do, Pastor, with me receiving the full reward God has for me? Look, look in Mark 6, 5. It will be on your screens. The Scripture says, now he could do no mighty work there. It's the city of Nazareth. It's his hometown. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Notice the scripture says it didn't say he would do no work there. If it said he would do no work there, I wouldn't have an issue with that because it would be a matter of his will. He just simply chose in his sovereignty to do 
no mighty works and only a few small miracles. But it didn't say he would do no. It said he could do no mighty work there, which means there was something going on in Nazareth that was beyond his will, restraining him. It wasn't that he chose not to. It was that he could not do. There was a restraining force in Nazareth that kept him from doing the full reward of his mighty work in Nazareth. He did amazing works in other cities in the face of far greater opposition So why not here? Jesus answered that very question in the preceding verses. In Mark 6, verse 2 through 4, it says, When the Sabbath had come, He began to teach in the synagogue. Many hearing Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to Him? And such mighty works are performed by His hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Jesus said the reason I cannot do what I have done in other places is because honor is being withheld from me in the city of Nazareth. They were offended that a common man claimed to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah and Isaiah. Jesus stood up in the synagogue and said, I am the one Isaiah talked about. I'm the Messiah. They were bothered by that because their kids studied the Torah with him in Torah school. He built their kitchen table. He was a carpenter. How can a man who built my kitchen table and went to school with my children as a common man be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? Because they took what was holy and made it common and withheld honor from him that deserved it. He was hindered in his ability to give them their full reward. There's another segment of people in the New Testament if you follow them through. They're the Pharisees, the religious They understood the law. They did something more. In Nazareth, they only received a partial reward. You read the scripture. He did a few miracles there. It was a partial reward. The Pharisees went a step further. They didn't just withhold honor. They dishonored him. The scripture says that they thought things about him in their hearts and he perceived it and rebuked them. They did things with deed and action and thought that disdained Jesus, that dishonored Jesus. They accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. Here's the amazing point of that. They received no reward. Watch. You follow them all through Scripture. Everywhere the Pharisees are, they're interrupting Jesus, performing miracles. He's raising the dead. He's opening blinded eyes. The lame are walking. I mean, these people are in a miracle crusade every day, and people are receiving the full reward of God's power in their life on a daily basis, and yet while they're around it, they see it. The Bible says they are amazed at it. None of them ever received it. You can be amazed by His power but not honor Him as a person and miss out. Nazareth withheld honor and only got part of what God wanted to give them. The Pharisees totally dishonored Him and got no reward at all. The Scripture says, be careful. Look, examine, so that you don't lose your life's work and you experience the full reward that God has. 
take the people in Nazareth and the Pharisees and contrast them with an old man named Simeon. In the book of Luke chapter 2, it tells the Christmas story that they brought the baby Jesus to the temple. Scholars tell us that old man had been in the temple most of his life. He was 113 years old. And in Luke chapter number 2, he holds this 30-day-old baby in his hands and he begins to sing a song over him. The words of Simeon's song affirm that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. Now here's the question I have. How does a man holding a baby know what people who saw the grown man perform miracles and raise the dead did not know. The Bible says the Holy Spirit revealed the truth of God to this man and because of that there was an honor on his heart for a baby when those who walked and talked and saw what Simeon never saw, they never understood because they did not have a heart of honor. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men. God says you can have honor for me in your doctrinal statements. You can have honor for me in your core values. You can have honor for me in your songs. You can have honor for me in your sermons. It is possible for you to have honor for me in every written law and commandment of your life. You can even say it from your lips. But honor is not an act of the mouth. True honor is an issue of the heart. It's one thing to honor God with your head. It's another thing to totally and truly honor God with your heart. Nazareth withheld honor and received partial reward. The Pharisees totally dishonored him and received no reward at all. Some people will honor Jesus with their whole heart in total obedience and total surrender and they will receive a full reward. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that before we leave. You remember the story in Matthew 8. I love that story of Jesus talking to the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter number 8. Here's a soldier who pleaded with Jesus, will you heal my paralyzed servant? And Jesus said in in Matthew 8, 7, I will come to your house and heal him. The centurion responded, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, sir. I want you to think about this. Here's the conqueror talking to the conquered. He is a Roman officer who has invaded the Jewish territory. His emperor rules the nation. The Jewish people are the conquered. They're the servants. And here is the conqueror talking to the conquered saying, I am not worthy to come into your house. A Roman officer, what would make a Roman officer talk to a Jewish carpenter And tell him, I'm not worthy to come into your house. That's like a colonel in the United States Marines telling an Iraqi plumber, I'm not worthy to come into your house. There were 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion. One commander over 6,000 soldiers. That legion was commanded by, broken up into groups of 100, 60 groups of 100 called centuries. And they were led by a centurion. Sixty centurions co-led a legion of 6,000 soldiers. One commander, 60 centurions. This man was over 100. He was a centurion. He was a man who understood authority. 
he said he understood honor. Matthew 8, 7, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man had a heart of honor toward Jesus. And he said to Jesus, you don't have to come into my house. Because I understand and see and through the Spirit recognize you are a man of authority that what you say happens, what you do sets miracles in motion. Just say the word. When he made that statement in verse 9, he was explaining. Listen carefully. He was explaining that he had the respect and obedience of the hundred men under him because he honored the commander over him. And by submitting to that authority, he enjoyed the backing of his superior officer who was backed by the power of Rome. In other words, he said, I have authority because I honor my country and my superiors by respecting their authority. And so all I have to do is speak a word and those underneath me respond to me immediately to my directives because the authority isn't coming from me. It is coming from the authority that's behind me because I submit to the chain of command. In verse 9, He says, for I also am a man under authority. For him to say, I too, I also am a man under authority, insinuates he believed Jesus was a man of authority, under authority. He saw it. He perceived it. He knew what no one else knew. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 10. He said, he marveled at this Gentile Roman soldier's faith. And listen to this statement. He said, there's no greater faith in all of Israel than what I see in this man. That's, that's a profound statement. Now, preachers get accused of evangelistically speaking. Jesus didn't exaggerate. When he said, this man has greater faith than all of Israel, he was saying, this man has more faith than John the Baptist. This man has more faith than Mary, my mother. This man has more faith than all the twelve disciples. No greater faith have I seen in all of Israel. It's no doubt that John the Baptist knew more Scripture and understood more of the principles of God. He probably knew God better, but he didn't have as much faith as the Roman soldier. It's no doubt that Mary, the twelve disciples, and the other knew more word. They had spent more time with Jesus, and yet they lacked the great faith of a Gentile soldier. So what distinguished the faith of a man that ran a hundred people in the military from all of these others in the house of Israel? He understood honor. He showed Jesus that when you couple the understanding of honor with an understanding of God's delegated authority, God gives you a key that opens up heaven for your full reward. It's not just hearing the Word that produces faith. But when you hear the Word, and you supplement that with honor and compliance to authority, here this man understood his full reward. His servant was healed by the spoken Word of God because he rendered honor and understood authority. Here's the key to the honor principle. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. He says, For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall lightly be esteemed. The key 
to receiving from heaven is the concept of honor. I want to tell you something this morning, church. My heart, as the pastor of this body, believes for you as an individual and for us as a congregation to move into what God has for us. How we, I have prayed coming into this service today. God, please don't let these people just be intellectually engaged. Don't let them look at this as academic. And I've been out of the pulpit last Sunday and, and meetings and, and I wanted to come back here and, I mean, just, and preach a, a, a topic that was less ap- academic. But in my heart, I know that the concept of honor, understanding of authority, and letting it grow in our hearts, knowing how to show it and be it and live it, is the concept we need to grasp for heaven to visit us and God to give us as our church our full reward. Next week, the Bible tells us that there is a a way to show honor to those above us. There's a way to show honor to our peers. There's a way to show honor to those who serve beneath us. And when I get in alignment with the heart of honor, and can demonstrate honor to people that are different levels than me in life and its social structure, I align myself with the full reward of God's blessing and favor. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all authority has been established by God. All authority. That's a tough pill for some believers to swallow. So the question then says, What happens to my life when I can't submit to the ungodly authority in my life? We're going to talk about that in detail. My boss is is immoral and has robbed me and cheated me. And I'm going to show you next week where there are business people in this church and in other places who have stayed submitted to God under chains of authority even when those over them have been ungodly and impure and had ill will towards those believers who let God handle it and God promoted them. Leave vengeance to God. We're going to talk about that next week, how to deal with ungodly authority. Maybe it's an ungodly authority in your home. You see, there are different delegations of God's authority on earth. There's the delegation of His civil authority in government. There's the delegation of His social authority in our social structure. There's the delegation of His authority in the home and the delegation of His authority in the church. And when we understand honor and authority in our lives, like the Roman centurion and others in Scripture, I believe it's in that moment that we don't become Nazareth. When we withhold, I don't want this church to become Nazareth. I don't want my family to be Nazareth. I don't want just a little dab of God's touch. I don't want half of what God has for us. I want all that God has for me. I want all that He has for our family. I want all that He has for this church. I, I don't want a partial reward. I definitely don't want to be a Pharisee and live without my reward. I want the full reward. I want to be careful. Examine myself. Examine this church that we walk into the full reward that God has for us. And that comes by alignment with the Word of God and understanding the principle of honor. This is what the Holy Spirit directed in my heart as a way to conclude this service. I want the team that's going to prepare our hearts in the end to come and on the platform, the musicians. And I talked with Pastor Bear today and I said, you know, I really need the Holy Spirit to give me direction this morning about how to conclude this message. And I felt he made that very clear to me. That we must take a moment and position our hearts to be a people who give God the permission to develop honor in our hearts. Some of us have been wounded, we've been hurt, 
we have reasons to be critical and, and, and we have reasons to be distrusting, all kinds of things. But, but what, what, what I'm asking you to do is just take a moment before we go anywhere this morning and say, God, I give you the permission to begin to establish honor as a principle in my life. As a wife who has an unbelieving husband, that I may honor the husband in my home. As children who have unbelieving parents or impure parents or parents that even mistreat you. The Bible says that children who honor their parents, God will add length of days to their life. You get it? Honor has a reward. There's a structure. There's a delegated authority. And when God's children submit to God's delegated authority through a broken heart of honor, it's in that moment He comes. You see, we, we, we have a hard time with this. I'm going to say more about this next week. But the easiest places in the world for me to see God's miraculous hand and His miraculous power is when I preach on a military base, in a prison, or in a foreign country. Because a military base understands authority. The prison understands authority. And most immigrant countries who are not democracies understand kings and kingdoms, and they understand authority. That's the reason men and women of God who've been anointed and missionaries see miracles all over the world. And they come back to the United States of America, preach the same sermon, walk in the same anointing, and see very little thing. Because we have become Nazareth, a people who do not understand honor. If we could grasp... The concept of what it is to honor God and to honor each other. There's an honor that goes to distinguished guests that walk through this. this, 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 They come to minister the gospel to us. This needs to be the most honorable place they ever walk into. I'm not talking about hospitable. There's a hospitable can be done by anybody. Honor is a spiritual thing. A homeless person walked through the door of that church. He needs to feel honored. The least among us if we could create a culture of honor in this house for men of God, for the homeless, if we could create a culture of honor in this house for women of God, for children, those who are peers, those who God has placed under us, those who God has placed over us, the key to receiving from heaven is a heart, not a head, not a lip, a heart who honors God and honors people. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God said, as I prayed this morning, instructed me to have us position our hearts in repentance and ask Him to place honor in our hearts. And it's not going to happen just right now. It's going to be a a choice we surrender to today. But after we do that, we're going to pray for God to move into this place miraculously. If you have a need in your life, if this church truly, as a corporate body, confesses its dishonor for God and each other, if this body truly means it with its heart, heaven will respond to that repentant prayer. And I believe there will be no greater environment after that moment for God to establish His kingdom in our sickness, in our lack, in our families, than after that moment of repenting prayer. I prayed this morning in my office and God said to me in my spirit there would be somebody in this church today who was almost persuaded to be a Christian. 
Do you realize the greatest thing that could ever happen in your life is to bring your life into spiritual alignment under the Lordship and dominion of Jesus Christ? If you are not a Christian, I'm not inviting you to religion. I'm inviting you into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. I gave that appeal this morning. I knew there would be one. Before we left, Gloria came to the altar. And I said, Gloria, have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? With tears running down her face, she said, no, but today I want Him to be my King. And Laura, Gloria came under the King's dominion today. And if you're like Gloria in this room, you may know church, you may know religion, but you don't know Jesus. Before we get out of this place, you need to honor Him with your life. And let it all start from right there. I want us to pause just for a moment. Right where you sit. Make it an altar. And I want you to ask God, create a heart of honor inside of me. Jesus, I pray for hearts of people in this room. That you will create a heart of honor inside individuals. And Lord, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for me. I want a heart in my life that honors my wife. I I, I want to honor the admin assistants in this church, the receptionist, the ushers, the children's leaders and workers and nursery staff. When I'm in their presence, God, I want them to sense that I honor them, an unspoken culture that I carry in my life. When I come in contact with the less fortunate, those who come into this place for angel food or those for benevolence, that they don't feel that there's someone looking down a condescending nose, but, but there is a congregation of people and leadership here who honor them. God, I pray that when dignitaries, guests, whether they're first-time guests that walk into this pool, this, this, this church tomorrow, or whether they come next Sunday, whether they're guests to speak or to observe, that Lord Jesus, they would leave here believing that God is creating a culture of honor. Create a culture of honor in the heart of this church. Deep within the people. Create a culture of honor in our lives that affects our office decorum, our family's attitude, the way we approach church and life. I give you permission to rearrange my selfish individualism. I take up the cross and I die so that your kingdom may live in me. Church family, would you corporately repent with me and say this prayer? Would you, would you say this with me out loud as a corporate confession so that North Place Church can be a place of God's full reward? Dear Jesus, forgive us for withholding honor. In some cases, forgive us for dishonor. We have withheld honor from others. We have withheld honor from you. We have dishonored others. And we have dishonored you. Extend grace to us. Establish honor in our hearts toward you and others. Position us as individuals and a church for your full reward. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If there's ever been a time for the miraculous power of God to touch somebody's life, it's in that moment. This place just confessed that it didn't want to be Nazareth. If you have a supernatural need in your life, physically, financially, some other arena in your life that cannot be met by human means, you need God to manifest Himself on your behalf. There's an environment right now that as we pray, I believe it can happen today. If that's you, and you have a supernatural need in your life that can only be met by God's intervention, I want you to stand right where you are. Just stand. I'm not going to ask you to come front. Just stand right where you are. I, whether it's a sickness, it's a relationship, it's a, it's a, it's a financial need, but it, it, it cannot be counseled out only, it cannot be budgeted out, it, it cannot be treated out. It is, it is a God must intervene on my behalf. Listen, this church just positioned itself, not only today, but from now on. We're not going to be Nazareth, we're not going to be Pharisees, we want God's full reward. And I believe that full reward can begin to establish itself in our lives right now right now in just a moment I'm going to ask some people that are around you they may not know your name that's okay I'm just going to ask them to agree with you in prayer I honor you by holding your need as valuable as mine the Bible says in Galatians 6 that when I bear your burden I fulfill the law of Christ and so I'm going to ask this church to be the church today in just a moment and I, I, I pray North Place don't you let one person that stood up be standing by themselves I don't care if you know their name at all and while they're coming to pray with one another right where they are they're going to agree hold hands lay a hand on a shoulder lightly while they're praying one for another if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ somebody in this room is almost persuaded to become a Christian and today you prepare your heart for the full reward of God in your life by giving Him your life while they're praying one for another I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to wait like I did on Gloria this morning I'm going to wait on somebody who says Pastor I need Jesus today in my life. I want to honor Him with my life. I'm going to pray with you today. I'll wait. I'll wait. Church family, would you stand and begin to move to those that are standing around you? You don't even have to know their name, but I want you to bear somebody's burden. Honor them. Prove that that prayer was not just lip service. Honor somebody by upholding their burden today. And I believe God's going to visit a place of honor. He's going to visit a place of honor. If you need Jesus, let me honor you today. And would you honor Him by giving your life to Him? I'm going to wait on you this morning as they sing. Come on, create an environment this morning of honor to God and to other people today.